Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer. This podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of actions. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. I couldn't be more excited about this week's episode. I'm joined by one of my closest friends from high school, James Zhang, co-founder of Black Panther Capital and the next Yao Ming. Black Panther Capital is a family office, and James operates two cryptocurrency-focused fund of funds. In addition to managing their own capital, Black Panther operates a global alliance of over 50 family offices from 20-plus countries across the globe. James, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Josh. It is, it is great to hear from you, buddy. So before we uh, even get started, James has a pretty incredible background. Uh, you know, James is from China, grew up in the Congo, and just told me some crazy stories, you know, went to NYU. Can, can, can you give us a little bit more about your background and a couple of the more wild stories from your childhood growing up in the Congo? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm Chinese. Uh, you know, I, I live in China where our home base is currently in Beijing, but I have never spent, I think, in the first 20 years of my life, more than two months out of the year in China. So my parents uh, moved to Congo, Africa, um, it's more than 30 years ago, uh, I started off with my, uh, grandparents age, my grandparents known as sort of like the, the shipping king of China, um, uh, at the time. So, you know, sort of went there gen three generations ago. My dad went to sort of like the, the, uh, Harvard of China at the time that was even harder to get into. It was like one out of like, you know, every 20, 30,000 people, you know, this was back when China was in still not, you know, what China is today. So my dad went there, you know, we started off, he started off in the shipping business and then sort of uh, pivoted, you know, Congo is known for two very, very unique um, natural resources, um, cobalt, which is used for EV vehicles, and second is diamonds. So we moved into um, the mining industry. So I personally well, lived in Congo for 14 years. Um, just a little background on the Congo itself. It's uh, this two, Republic of Congo and Democratic Republic. So I was in the DRC. Um, it was colonized by the Belgians, probably one of the worst, uh, kings of the time, King Leopold. I'm sure everyone has heard of the history on that. So basically you grew up there speaking French, um, uh, as a mother tongue with everyone from friends, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I went to the only American international school there, which, um, was, was very uh, fortunate. So that's how I could speak English well. And then, ch uh, Chinese is actually my third language, um, which I spoke at home with my parents. So honestly, just Congo was, was, I never realized how unique of an experience it was until I sort of went to Hong Kong for high school, uh, when I was around like 15, 16, and which is when we met and, you know, it went from like concrete jungle to, to literally the most densely populated Asian city, uh, sorry, definitely not the most densely populated, but Hong Kong is, uh, is pretty incredible in itself. So yeah, I mean, I mean, happy to jump into some of these uh, crazier stories later on. But I think one off the top of my head was um, I had to leave overnight um, in my seventh grade 
from Kinshasa, the capital, um, to one of the most boring but beautiful, most beautiful places I've ever been to in the world, uh, Victoria, Canada, due to civil war in Congo. So basically every four years during election times, there's always something insane or crazy that happens and you just got to cross your fingers that it doesn't uh, keep happening because basically the president is it's a democratic you know country but obviously the US and China have have very different interests in uh, helping and in political geopolitical aspects for it it said that the Congolese president if uh, he he uses resources well is the richest man on the planet with the amount of natural uh, resources available to him in the country so what do you uh what do you miss most about living in the Congo what was the what was the coolest part about you know you know, being an expat living in the, uh, living in the Congo growing up? You know, that's the thing. Honestly, I never really felt like an ex- expat in the Congo. I, I, you know, spoke Lingala there as well. So that's, that's the fourth language I speak, which is a local dialect. You know, I honestly never really felt racism or like sort of on the outside in Congo, just cause my friends growing up, et cetera, you know, we kick it like, like it's just, it's just normal. It doesn't really, it, it wasn't really, it was a mix. It's like in my school, you know, I, I think 70% um, black uh, um, and there was like 15%, 20% white. And then uh, there was a lot of Indian kids. I was the only, my sister and I were the only Chinese kids that were actually in the school, but honestly never experienced anything sort of like uh, uh, too crazy or racism. Um, honestly, the, the thing I missed the most probably the food the Congolese food is amazing like uh i think african food in general is very underrated and underrepresented in the world so whenever i go back to africa which we go probably once or twice a year um we try to visit a few countries congo honestly is not the top top of the list i'll, I'll just give you for an example for example like you know when we go to zambia or zimbabwe which is the new south africa and tanzania's for um uh, watching animal migration, et cetera, you know, six-star hotel to, you know, view all of this. And, um, you know, when you tell them that you're from, when I told them I'm from Congo, Kinshasa, they're like, wow. So like to someone from Africa, when they hear you're from Congo, Kinshasa, that's like, you know, if you're from Manhattan and you say you grew up in the Bronx or something like that, you know, Queens, it's like sort of like a, like that sort of a stipulation. Very cool. So let's, let's fast forward, I don't know, eight, 10 years from the time that you left the, uh, the, the Congo, can you give us a, a little bit of a background on to what you're doing now, which is Black Panther Capital, how it all got started and, and what types of companies BPC is investing in? Yeah, so um, Black Panther Capital honestly started, I would have to take you back to since my college days. So I went, so I started, I went to NYU um, in 2013, studied computer science. I, I think to bring this full circle, I have to bring in my sister, uh, which is honestly our founding partner for Black Panther and uh, the visionary uh, I'd say of of our entire space. So essentially, in 2015 is when Black Panther Capital sort of started as a single family office, which is our own family office. Where Alice, um, my sister, I went to Columbia University, exited the startup, did finance, went to Columbia Endowment Fund, and then uh, sort of saw this opportunity in 2015, where you know the the story that's very overtold now, but between Silicon Valley and China, whether it would be investments into tech in Silicon Valley, bringing over to China or Chinese companies going forward and moving into the US. So she really believed in in um, the Chinese tech space at the time, just looking at the numbers, you know, looking at sort of the growth, et cetera, et cetera. Like just example, PDD, um, Pindodo, I think it's an e-commerce site that 
is only popping up on the radar to U.S. and international investors now, but it reached a market cap larger than Microsoft uh, in five years that Microsoft could do in 20, 20 plus years. So I think that just goes to show the large economy and uh, consumer market in China. So essentially in 2015, moved from the New York straight to Beijing, which is essentially the Silicon Valley of China. Shenzhen is more the hardware capital and Shanghai is the financial capital. So I put those three as sort of like the uh, um, placements. So we obviously investors in tech, you know, Alice moved over with just one goal in mind, invest in the TMT sector in China. We set up our base, you know, across from, literally across from us is ByteDance, five minutes away is Bitmain. Baidu is uh, like a short walk away. So our goal at the time of, uh, when Al started is to invest in these tech unicorns, whether it be to find Series A, Series B growth stage companies or later stage ones even, um, and have our family invest. Because just to just to give some color, uh, we invested in like, say, as a personal family office, over 30 funds, you know, from uh, Noah Wealth Management, Sequoia, um, Vista Equity Partners, you know, got very, very, very lucky on that one. You know, Robert Smith came to China for, I, be, I believe, only one day in his life. And uh, that, that when he did that, sort of a road show in Shenzhen. And my, and my mom was the only Chinese investor that had invested, which was, this is decades ago. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of serendipity there. But essentially, personally, for how Black Panther Capital crypto strategy got started was I started looking at Bitcoin since 2013, studying computer science at NYU. And at that time, you know, it was still a very small community, you know, uh, telling Alice, you know, telling my friends, my family about Bitcoin is sort of just like one of those dreams that cryptocurrency is XXX. But the reason I could really understand it is because it's, I, I understood from the beginning, it's not a use of payment for daily. You know, when you're in China, you got WeChat Pay, Alipay. I literally have never brought my wallet out when I go out in China because QR codes are everything. It's so easy to transfer money. So it's even easier than the U.S. using PayPal, Venmo, and cash. But Bitcoin, you know, I understand is because I sent like 2K USD back to back home to Congo to to help out some of um, the people I grew up with, like uh, my driver, you know, uh, my caddy, and a bunch of like you know sort of friends over there, where it goes a long way, two thousand dollars a month. Um, and using Western Union and other forms of payment, it would usually take you know eight to fifteen percent. Uh, off the top and takes a few days for, to process it, to wire it, to get there. Now, using Bitcoin, I realized just this one simple tool, you know, I send, I send it to him, it takes an hour from uh, literally my dorm room in New York uh, and NYU in Washington Square Park to him in Congo, Kinshasa, then he would just take the Bitcoin and sell it locally, P2P with someone. And within two, three hours, he has that cash to feed his family to do uh, whatever it is that's necessary to, you know, honestly move on with life. And just from that one use case, I realized it's honestly not the fastest form of payment, but the the use case is there, uh, whether for remittance, but obviously now we see it's digital gold. So Black Panther Capital Crypto Strategy sort of started uh, in 2017 after I graduated. Um, you know, I was thinking of doing a couple projects. I was thinking of doing exchange, et cetera. It was was getting very hot in the U.S. Um, And this is when, uh, honestly, I have to thank my sister as well to say, come back to China. You got to see what's going on over here. 2017 June, you could not go through one lunch or dinner without people bringing up Bitcoin in China. And this is this is crazy. I'm talking about GPs of Sequoia, GPs of like some of the largest funds talking to me, a 23 year old kid 
you know, freshly graduated about what cryptocurrency is and, you know, having me give, give some of their employees, et cetera, certain seminars. So from there, um, you know, sort of saw the opportunity to give a more balanced uh, portfolio for our family offices. Um, and essentially, yeah, by 2017, Alice had already grown our family office network to around, I say, 30 to 40 and wanted to give them a balanced portfolio. So in my mind, this is very simple. Do I do a fund myself? And if I do, can I beat the top 10 fund managers in my mind at the time that I've known since 2013 till 2017? And the, it was a clear no for me. So spent a year fundraising, um, raised our first fund of funds and deployed in 2018, June. And then in 2019, June, sort of went to a different strategy, same thing, but in the crypto space and the quant, uh, investing only in quant funds. So I'd say that's the two sort of sectors that we jumped into. So you, you mentioned a couple interesting things there that I want to hop in on. The first is on the remittance use case. And I've always been, you know, completely intrigued by the remittance use case. I mean, both of us, you know, grew up in, you know, or, or spent time, you know, in high school living in Hong Kong. And, you know, one of the things that you, you, you know, you see is that is that a number of families will have, um, you know, foreign domestic helpers, which are which are Filipino, you know, maids that, that live at home. Um, and they're, they're constantly remitting money back home. And, you know, I was used to, um, you know, my helper going and, and, and sending, you know, whatever it was, two, three, four hundred dollars home, but, but paying these egregious fees. So I'm in the same boat as you that I think digital currency offers, you know, the best use case for, uh, remittances. But a question that I have for you is, do you think the Bitcoin network is the best network for remittances? Or do you think stable coins now, which have, you know, taken, taken hold, uh, you know, offer a, a better solution for remittances than, than, than Bitcoin does? Um, obviously, uh, great question. I think the volatility issue is there. There's been times when I've, you know, even within those two, three hour timeframes when I sent the Bitcoin, the value dropped uh, drastically and uh, had to resend some more. So I, I, told, I, I totally understand that. But the issue is in remote places like Congo, Kinshasa, you know, the, the local P2P network, probably the only coin they accept is either Ethereum or Bitcoin. Um, they don't, couldn't couldn't they don't, somebody you know, use no. a, mm-hmm. a, you know, like a, a decentralized exchange or another exchange to convert the tether then into Bitcoin to, to take offline? Or is it just easier for them? I mean, do they, would they, do you think somebody would rather have 500 USDT or a $500 equivalent in Bitcoin? And the reason I ask is just because, you know, the Bitcoin network is obviously slow. Um you know, as you mentioned, it takes 40 minutes to an hour to transact versus, you know, if you're transacting a stable coin on top of, let's say, you know, you know, Ethereum, which has its own issues now with, mm-hmm. you know, with transactional fees, um, you know, the, the time is six minutes and, and you're sending somebody, you know, a, an advanced economy collateralized dollar. I mean, is your thought that it's just because of the, the local peer-to-peer network, it's just easier for Bitcoin? I think if we're going for just pure tech, you know, we could we could even send what like Litecoin, like uh, there's a bunch of other coins out there that, that transacts within like a second or two, right? Even faster than right. six minutes. But in Congo, in Kinshasa, where I am sort of transferring to, there is no one there that knows what Litecoin is or what USDT is. Their P2P, right. they can only transfer, uh, sell off Bitcoin or Ethereum because my driver really or my friends, yeah, they don't care whether what they get, BTC, CTB, DTB, you know. But as long as locally they can sell this. Um, right. right after I transfer it to them and get Congolese francs, the local currency, then they're good with that. Which well, is it's the whole uh, point. it's cool to see, you know, the, the the fact that there is 
there are are many use cases for digital assets that are actively mm-hmm. being used. I mean, hearing you speak about, you know, actually physically sending remittances back. And I actually, you know, funny enough, when I was moving from New York, I moved out to uh, to California. I listed a guitar for sale online. You know, I think you remember I used to be super into playing guitar. And yeah. uh, I... Um, you know, somebody looked me up, they found that I was into crypto and was like, would you take Bitcoin for your guitar? And so that was my first ever Bitcoin transaction that I did, Wow, uh, which is pretty interesting to see, you know, it actually kind of come full circle. You know, look, I obviously am a believer in, you know, the Bitcoin is a digital gold narrative more than I am as a, as a you know, um, you know, as a, as a, as a mechanism for, for transferring capital. But I think it's still, you know, really interesting to see those use cases. So before we even dive deep into crypto, because there are so many questions that I have for you. My, my first question is, you're doing something really interesting with the Black Panther Global Alliance. And I think you alluded to that a few times earlier with the, the co-investing with, you know, 30 or 40 or whatever it was family offices. Can you can you give me, um, you know, a little bit of a, a background on what that is and how that came to be? Totally, totally. So this is um this is a little bit non-crypto. So crypto is about five to 10 percent of what Black Panther Capital does. Um, our bread and butter is investing in uh, the TM- TMT deals out of China, uh, mostly later stage. So in our portfolio, certain things I, can, I can't disclose, you know, due to secondary shares and a lot of Chinese founders are very, very sensitive to that. But just as a whole, you know, Black Panther Capital right now is 50 family offices that, you know, invest uh, in tech together. So if you look at what a multifamily office is, right, look at the, you know, the, the top one right now, Rockefeller family office, they are you know, the most prestigious, most namesake, they have the largest funds under management, et cetera. To even get an account open there, you need to deposit $50 million. Mm-hmm. So what they do for you as a multifamily office, you know, they'll pay your electricity bills, they'll book your private jets, they'll set up your trust and for your kids and then, you know, buy insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So Black Panther Capital for us, our own family office, you know, when Alice and I had started this, uh, now we're around 20 something people. It was never to do any of that. It was just with one thesis. We're just investing in tech. Now, as a family office, you know, why did we even start doing sort of direct investments instead of just, you know, putting money into these so-called great funds, um, as I air quotes on right now? <laughs> it's because, you know, we in, in China, we, we, we invest in like 30-something funds in starting like 2010 till 2016 and some did amazing you know like uh sequoia one sequoia two maybe no wealth management one two but then it became a aum game you know sequoia is raising like 15 billion dollars a year in china like it's it it just completely becomes a right how do you deploy that capital and and it's funny because that comes full circle with crypto as well right where you know, how do you deploy capital, you know, let alone trying to buy shares of ByteDance, which is TikTok, how do you deploy capital on illiquid cryptocurrencies, which is kind of funny to see, you know, how you've right. come full circle on that in that regard as well. Yeah. So, so I mean, like, just, just to um, finish out that thought, you know, it's like for us, the, the reason we position ourselves as investing in the Chinese TMT sector is because one, we feel like this is the highest growth sector and that's what we do it. And the global capital, uh, global, Black Panther Global Alliance is sort of made up of 60 members right now in various uh, areas of the world. So f- from India, we have a few of the most uh, influential family offices there. You know, Indonesia, the largest market we feel for Southeast Asia, where we're opening an office soon. We're working with, you know, uh, I think the new uh, newest, uh, richest family office over there. So essentially, we want to work with the Black Panther capitals of each area. We're not going to go into India and say, you know, we know these companies really well you know this is how we're going to navigate the regulation because 
there's no there's no way we we know it as deeply as the Black Panther capital of India, so to speak. So that's how we sort of form this alliance, so everyone can sort of meet once or twice a year, discuss ideas, but more so invest together in different geographies, uh, led by you know the fam- family offices that are kind of more in the know how of the areas. Instead of investing into funds and doing sort of co investments with them, we feel right now it's a deal flow game, uh, purely. Like, uh, give you an example, Bike Dance heated up. I think from 75 billion valuation in December to what 130 on secondary shares as of like a month ago. Obviously, with the Trump TikTok situation, it's gone down a little bit, but it just goes to show like a lot of a lot of um, U.S. and other capital around the world has not really caught on to sort of the Chinese trends and the Chinese companies. Another one would be PDD. Another one would be Kuaisho. Kuaisho. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's like a competitor to. It's also a live streaming app. It's only twenty-two to thirty billion in valuation, but very, very similar and doing amazing things, similar to Bike Dance. So we sort of like to find these hidden gems that are not already at the Bike Dance TikTok level, but also still in the growth stage, pass and have product market fit and have already solidified themselves. So one last question. I mean, we could we could do an entire episode. I mean, you know. BPC and James have, you know, are obviously doing a tremendous amount outside of crypto. But, you know, my last question before we dive into crypto, and I think it's a good transition as well, is um, what are your thoughts on, you know, the, the, I guess, fighting that is, you know, existing between United States and China? And I'm not asking you to give an opinion, but more of, you know, how do you feel that that's putting a lot of the investments that you have at risk? Or are you comfortable, you know, is, is, is it giving you any more hesitation to write checks? It's a great question. Um, I think it's, it's first off. I think it's given everyone, any investor that does cross border investments, a lot of pressure. Seeing um, what one person will tweet can change your, you know, investment thesis, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, for us right now, we we try to the checks we've written. For example, DJI. Um, I'll give an example, right? DJI drones is is like the Apple, the drone industry. They, they probably have like the largest market share. The second one is is a completely non-existent even by far and just in the technological aspect so on our due diligence you know on our trip to the u.s we sort of speak with the military and we speak with various aspects and be like are you able to replace dji drones like literally the the military can cannot find an alternative to dji drones even with all the backlash that trump has has uh, sort of given it and you know listing obviously there will be a lot of issues for us and and the, for investors in the timeline, we expected a one to three year exit IPO on the NASDAQ. You know, the company is so cash flow positive that it's not even in a rush to go public. But there's definitely been some issues there. But we're not really sort of like too worried about just from a fundamental perspective. Because, you know, if the military doesn't use DJI, they literally their you know budget would have to go up insanely. You know, to they would have to fly a two helicopter, you know, manned mission just above a mountain just to see what's going on instead of sending 10 drones out there and trying getting everything to 360. So from a fundamental perspective, we're still very confident. Um, but at the moment, of course, there's a there's a lot of hesitation in doing any transactions, uh, sort of Chinese companies that will be listed in, in the NASDAQ and that are USD denominated. So you, you mentioned a lot of you know due diligence here, right? And, and regulation making you weary 
and, and making you potentially do a little bit more due diligence. So you spoke earlier about originally starting with you know fundamental funds and then moving to quantitative funds. And, I, and I, so what I'm wondering is across both fundamental and, and quantitative funds, which you allocated to, you know, when, when you decided or when you decide to allocate to a particular crypto fund, what are you looking for and, and how are you doing your due diligence on funds, especially in light of the fact that, you know, as an emerging asset class, um, you know, these funds inherently have very small track records. Mm-hmm. Yes. So starting with our first fund of fund, maybe it was a purely long um, sort of fundamentally driven fund, you know, uh, funds such as like Scalar Capital, the meta stables of the world where 80%, you know, to 90% of their portfolio is in tokens, liquid tokens, you can buy in secondary market, Bitcoin, ETH, Monero, uh, what have it. And the other 10 to 15, 20% per se is into the tokens. So kind of like, it's honestly very similar to the traditional space where you invest in with certain funds like Sequoia so that they can give you co-investments rights into certain companies that you would not be able to access yourselves. Um, so in crypto, we, you know, at the time sort of really believed in Josh, Naval, you know, we feel like they see every deal flow that passes through. So sort of the side pocket is what we really are investing for, where, you know, there, there can be a, a much larger return than uh, holding tokens, because we understand that those long sort of value funds, how do we hedge that? So we hedged it with sort of the VQRs, the virtual capitals of the world that do arbitrage, that, you know, maximum drawdown things like negative uh, 5.5% in uh, in like one month out of two years. Uh, so that's kind of how we hedged our fund-to-fund portfolio in general. But in the due diligence process, honestly, one is seeing their, seeing the long track records. And then two is seeing is taking a chance on sort of some of the first-time fund managers. So on the long track records, you have, you know, Metastable. They started in 2013, made their sort of like the Pantera Capitals, where they made their name on maybe just buying Bitcoin, but They've, they've already solidified their positions as a support of the world. So any of the, in the crypto industry, so any of the projects uh, fundraising, we'd we'll love to have them on their cap table, uh, so to speak, as an investor and have allocate a certain amount of tokens to them. So that was not as hard of a diligence process, but we understood that it's, if Bitcoin dropped, say 30%, our portfolio you know, and our fund of fund would take a big hit as well. So we were very long asset class at the time. And just full disclosure, we we um, sort of deployed at probably one of the worst times in 2018 June, right at the beginning of the bear market. Um, but they've honestly managed quite well, I have to speak, in a, in a sense to speak, a manner. On the other hand, you got first-time fund managers such as Scalar Capital, you know, Linda Shane, Jordan Clifford, um, you know, great guys, you know, talked to them multiple times, very, very smart in the space. But as a first-time fund manager, we always are wary. Because they can give you the largest returns because if they can leave whatever they were doing before to run a fund and raise X amount of capital, they obviously have some things in their back pocket. For example, in the traditional space, you know, if the head of Sequoia Healthcare leaves to raise their first fund, usually people are wary, but we, we would be the first check-in as a family office because, you know, we love that. He can probably get some of the best deal flow in the space that Sequoia couldn't. And then we also have co-investment rights because we're an anchor investor. So that's kind of like what we did with Skater Capital. Uh, so I guess there's just different investment profiles and Virgil, right? Stefan, a 1996 kid, young buck, but was our best performing fund uh, throughout 2018 to 2019 and managed extremely professionally. So I think there's, there is something, so to speak, in the crypto space where age, you know, isn't everything. And there are, there are certain people that will really surprise you and give great returns. Yeah. I mean, what, what interests me, right. As you know, you know, 
you know, looking on the outside and at somebody managing a fund of funds is, and, and this is the same thing that goes for us as a data company, right? Like is data from 2016, you know, what happened to the price of Bitcoin in 2016 and what investor sentiment was in 2016 still relevant to 2019? You know, is there, is there the same level of relevancy here to 2020, right? And, and how can you judge the track record, you know, of, of, of performance in a, in a completely different type of market? Is that something that, you know, ever went through your head as, as, you know, you were co-investing in these or, or as you were, you know, writing checks into these different funds, is that something that you saw play out, um, you know, in reality? Totally. You know, there's honestly, when we looked at a fund, like you said, how, how can a, how can a track record in 2016 be seen reflected in 2019? Bitcoin's had four drawdowns more than 90% uh, since 2009. So sort of what we looked at was, I guess, one, how did the fund perform during a bull market, during a bear market, and most importantly, during a stagnant market, which is probably what it was for the past year or so. You know, it would probably stay around 9K, then stagnate around 11K, stagnate around 6K. Well, obviously not in March 2020 when they had a big drop. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I think it's a trust factor and risk, risk uh, management. So for us, our family offices, like the LPs for both of our fund of funds, like the same five family offices, uh, second gens or, you know, the second generation of the family office of the family that's taking over their family office that has a higher risk sort of tolerance and wants to invest in these alternative assets. So when they're allocating, you know, um, into the space, in the crypto space, they're really not looking at, you know, 20%, 25% annualized return, which would be really great already for any other industry. But for crypto, they're sort of allocating, um, as so to speak, the best that I heard is, you know, put 1% of your capital in. If it goes to the moon, it goes to the moon, it goes to zero, it goes to zero. Obviously, we don't think of it that way. But for a lot of Chinese investors and LPs, uh, you have to understand that is how they look at it. So we were sort of forced to also take more risk um, and be more long asset class uh, with our first fund of funds because of our LP base. So I think that's something to consider where who your investors are already um, – also sort of shape who sort of your strategy because you kind of um, can take different risk profiles. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, kind of flows well into this next question is, you know, it's it's shoot for the moon or, 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 or zero in a way, right? And one of the, you know, unfortunate, I guess, zeros was adaptive capital. Um, and, and, and I believe you guys are an investor in adaptive capital. Can you give us a little bit of background on, on you know, what happened and, and what the... Uh, you know, the ramifications were for you as an investor? Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah, Adaptive Capital uh, was a fund in our second fund of funds, which uh, was purely invested into quant funds. So their discretionary trading fund, you know, we understood that they would have months that, you know, would be down or pretty much stagnant and then have months that are up 60%, which uh, they honestly did perform according to what their uh, thesis said. Uh, you know, it was pretty much stagnant. They, they launched in 2019, June. And we're stagnant pretty much till 2020 Jan- uh, January before they did six, uh, December, they did 60%. And then January, they did another 40%. You know, they t- took up to 4x leverage. Um, so, and there, honestly, our investment thesis into them is sort of the f- first type of uh, the second type of fund that I told you about, where their first time fund managers, Murad and Willie Wu, um, you know, obviously very great reputation in the crypto space as technical traders. I think where it went wrong for them was honestly uh, their large, long positions at 6K. 
So I can't really blame adaptive capital completely. You know, they were liquidated 67% and immediately returned the other 30% of capital to investors um, the second week. I can go into what happened there. But at the same time, if you take a look at adaptive, that is a first-time fund manager, right? There's a team of like four guys. Uh, whereas you look at the other funds that blew up, for example, Crypto Labs, you know, they have 10 guys from like a uh, school in Russia that's even hard to get into MIT. They have great algorithms, a very professional team. And yet they were fully 100% liquidated. Um, I won't go into that. We're not an investor. We were also very close there. But uh, I think it just goes to show that crypto, the market in general, is brutal at times. You know, uh, the, I think the reason for shoot to the moon or or um, go to zero is these times when Bitcoin does not move for like nine months and in one day. Right. I think and I, I think it's I, important to I think it's an important point you make is be careful. Right. As an investor, you have to be careful in this in this asset class. Right. You mentioned four times leverage. And, you know, to to a lot of BitMEX, you know, traders, four times leverage is child game. Right. When, when you could be trading 50 <laughs> or 100, 100 times leverage. And I think it it just shows you, you know, you know, look, James and, and BPC and, and, you know, the companies they co-invest with are OK. You know, if one of their funds doesn't perform well, but as an individual investor, you, you certainly have to be careful. You, you most definitely do. You most definitely do. You know, adaptive capital, if they weren't liquidated um, that day, they would, I think, be up 3x right now in their entire fund because they, they had 4x, 5x leverage positions at 6 to 7k. But uh, obviously, who can see Bitcoin dropping from 9,500 to 3,600 within it, eight hours? It, and, it, no. and it just shows you, right? It just, it just, this this market is still early, right? It's still a little bit immature and, and you can prepare for everything, but, you know, Bitcoin can drop from 9,500 to 3,600, right? It just, it, it can. And it was, you know, a confluence of weird factors that led to it, you know, with BitMax cas- cascading liquidations and, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, the country being shut down. But, um, you know, it, it just, it shows that you can't, you can plan for a lot, but you can't necessarily plan for anything, everything. So my next question is, is how do you benchmark funds performance? Are you benchmarking against something like the S&P 500? I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, it's, it's very much a shoot for the moon strategy, but are you benchmarking against Bitcoin? You know, how, how are you, how are you, you know, making that determination of, of whether a fund has performed well? So the reason we offer two fund of funds with different strategies, one is more long asset class, which I guess you could say is more shoot to the moon. Um, Cause if Bitcoin goes up, you know, investors are benchmarking that against Bitcoin. You know, when they look at their phones and they're like, oh, Bitcoin's up 20% today, my fund must be doing well. Well, if you're in the first fund of fund and you're long asset class, yes, you will most likely, if Bitcoin's up 20%, you'll probably be up 15 because we're still hedged with certain arbitrage and other uh, market neutral funds. Whereas on the second fund of fund, investing in quant funds, uh, those are is a lot more market neutral. So that we would benchmark more to against um, USD and how much we're up in USD terms. So I think it's two different investor profiles that we have, which we see in China is getting more and more mature. In 2017, uh, I think you could fundraise any sort of fund, any ICO and EOS, you know, every coin of shilling in China. Chinese investors, I think in general, are just a, a little bit less sophisticated than US and um, other investors because China, China money, well, this, this is a whole other topic, grew like very fast in the last few decades. Uh, so they're obviously a lot more, interested in putting money into investments because they understand inflation and everything, but just less sophisticated in terms of the due diligence process. And so 
you you've done a lot of due diligence on crypto funds, and this is kind of a loaded question. But are there any interesting trends that you're seeing? Are, are you seeing funds get larger than they were when you guys first deployed a few years ago? Uh, have you seen specific types of funds outperforming others, whether they you know are in the first or second fund that you had? You know whether it's quantitative funds are outperforming, you know more discretionary funds, and um, are you seeing any of the more traditional funds that you guys have have worked with uh, launching crypto initiatives? I want to say about sort of the, the, our due diligence, you know, we spoke with more than 200 something funds. Um, a lot has shut down since 2017. I'd say like about 50% of them have shut down. So if you take it, take a look in that perspective, then honestly, it was very, it's like, you know, if you're picking, picking uh, winners and half of them are, will, will, won't even exist in like two, three years, then it's, it's sort of a tough, tough situation to be in, to be a fund of funds. Um, just a couple examples, you know, like uh, not not throwing shade or anything, but one of the funds that we were very interested in, like Tetris Capital, you know, were was managing, I believe, more than like 30, 40 million bucks. Um, and they shut down because they took a long, long, uh, short position on Ethereum. And their fund, I believe, drew down 70 to 80%. Another one would be, say, Neural Capital, right? We thought those guys are extremely brilliant, you know, et cetera. But I think that that goes to show... Also, they took a very leveraged position into one outlook. So I think for these fund managers in crypto, it's it's very tough to manage risk. I'd say that's the hardest thing. Uh, I think a lot of them are also in the mentality of they transition from their jobs at Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to come into crypto, not for the what they were doing at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, you know, looking at, you know, different equity deals, et cetera, returns. They're looking also at much higher returns and honestly trying to get more into the crypto space. So for these bets, you know, that you t- it's just insane, right? Like uh, you look at a few days ago, Zeus Capital got liquidated because they were short Chainlink and Chainlink goes up 30% and they're done. Um, so I think it's just a lot, of, a lot of bets that you cannot control and there's not a lot of fundamentals that you can um, sort of due diligence in the crypto market at the moment. It's sort of, you have to trade with the macro trend. So yeah, so that that perfectly transitioned into my next question was, you know, you you made some investments initially at, in discretionary and fundamental drif- driven funds, and it it sounds like a lot of that was for deal flow. But when but how do you actually define fundamentals for crypto, or do you think this is a market that still lacks fundamentals? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So using sort of our mindset of Black Panther does in the traditional space, investing into funds and sort of getting follow-on allocation, et cetera, et cetera, whether it be, you know, the Sequoias or with more like the China Renaissances of the world, you know, uh, their healthcare funds, you know, there's great follow-up investments that, you know, you can honestly due diligence fundamentals very easily. What is their revenues, you know, what's their earnings, et cetera, et cetera. For crypto, one, I realized uh, it's a it's a myth that you will get follow on investments with these funds because they're so over allocated these projects and there's so much money in crypto that no fund uh, will have extra allocation for you as an LP for one. Two, just to goes to show the YC model doesn't really work in crypto. You know, taking X amount of uh, percentage equity of your company and then uh, giving you a co working space and then giving you guidance because. Uh, people in crypto founders have already made a lot of money just by being in crypto and holding an asset. Probably when they came in in 2010, 2011, and if you were in by that time in Bitcoin, you made a lot in Ethereum token sale. So they are not lacking money. So I think a lot of the projects were very ambitious and set higher goals um, rather than sort of like lower benchmarks for themselves. And that's where 
uh, one out of maybe a hundred companies and bets would work out. So aside from operating a fund of funds, you, you're personally investing in the space. And I think you mentioned earlier that you've redeemed some capital, which is now being you know allocated. Um, you know, you guys are personally trading now. So what specific projects have you excited now? Are you mostly or are you mostly interested in Bitcoin? And, and are you guys, you know, more long term now or is, or is it more, you know, discretionary active management? Mm hmm. So for Black Panther, we redeem from certain funds uh, just because we, we feel like we're paying 220 honestly, for, for, for a lot of funds to be holding Bitcoin, um, it's just to say it plainly in, in many ways, uh, which we can custody ourselves using BitGo or one of 100 other great custodians. Um, so for us, Black Panther strategy, what we do right now is lucky enough throughout this time in the space, we're able to find some amazing uh, traders. So we run our own sort of options fund strategy right now where the volatility is great in the space um, and there's a lot more transparency. You know, running a fund of funds, you got to wait for audited reports. I think that's that's one of the pain points that people don't understand. Our LPs at the end of June want to know exactly how June did or at the end of July, how was July. But you then got to wait for NG Stover, one of 10 other fund admins to come audited and then give you an audited report literally in one month later so you don't even know exactly what happened the last month and how the strategy performed and by that time you probably do not have that much transparency so for black panther right now um, our lps are still very much interested in being long in the space but also for us to sort of to create a strategy where for them they're a bit more risk averse and are hedged so the options sort of trading fund that we're doing right now is is uh, what we feel like we're very comfortable with as we can see every trade ourselves. We're doing everything ourselves. And also in general, we see, we see a lot more capital coming in and more professional traders, so to speak, um, not kids that are one or two years out of college um, doing a fund uh, because they were in it, you know, uh, since the beginning and believe they can outsmart um, uh, many of the traditional space traders. We are much more comfortable looking at, you know, for example, a Firus capital, you know, by two, uh, was at Two Sigma, you know, et cetera, et cetera, great trader, and then comes into the crypto quant space in March, managed the risk very well. So I think we're seeing a lot more like Gabriel motion capital. Um, I believe they're going to do a race soon. You know, he was at, um, he, he ran a prop, he built up the vault prop desk for uh, Stony Bridge. So guys like that, we're a lot more comfortable with in the sense that they have been there, done that in the traditional space and now are coming into the crypto space. And would you bet on a you know two-year kid out of college or someone like that? So for Black Panther, we're sort of finding these sort of hidden gems, guys are coming in that are, you know, their capacity is all limited. I think that's the one thing I'll leave uh, everything on, everyone on in this, like, a really great quant uh, strategy cannot go over, I believe, 50 million in the crypto space right now. Take Virgil Capital. They were, when we subscribed, they were, I think, around 40, 50 mil. They ran up to 100. Stefan was very, very um, responsible in what he did. He, he uh, returned a lot of capital, et cetera. So our, our strategy honestly just runs to 50 to 60 mil. Otherwise, it eats into our alpha. So I think anyone pitching a strategy right now that, that's quant that goes over 50 to 100 million is, is kind of um, dreaming a little bit. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. So are you guys actively then looking for more traditional fund managers that are now in crypto? And if so, are you looking still for more quantitative funds or are you open to both discretionary and quantitative um, you know, funds that that, you know, are started by traders that have, you know, serious track records, you know, potentially in other asset classes? And and would you be more interested investing in, for example, if 
your you know a two sigma raised a crypto fund versus you know if a you know um, you know a trader from two sigma went and started their own fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the crypto space right now is only like three hundred billion market cap. The two sigmas, you know, the large players of the world are not jumping in just because the, the I feel like the money is too small for them still. So it's more so guys from their funds that are leaving that are trying to implement certain strategies and make a name for themselves and raising 20, 30 bucks uh, to do it. So for Black Panther right now, we're looking for, honestly, what we do is a lot of managed accounts now. We feel like managed accounts with traders are one of the best ways to go to one, due diligence and dollar cost averaging for money. So for example, for Adaptive, we were able to do a managed account. You know, Then we were able to see that their strategy, what they were pitching versus what they were actually trading was very different. Um, they showed returns in the first like, previous seven months of what they did up 7x on Bitcoin. But maybe that was just on ten to $100,000. And what they were doing uh, when they had started trading with us, we, we when we were already locked in for a year, we feel it was very different. So I think for a lot of other fund of funds in the space as well, and I don't want to speak for you know other fund of fund managers, but we managed accounts are always uh, something that make you feel more comfortable. Uh, so finding those sort of guys that are willing to do managed accounts, you know, and put their reputation name on the line because they're just that confident that they don't need to lock you up for a year and take a management fee. That is something where your incentives are aligned and you're on the same boat. Uh, sort of like, you know, GPLP, our family office always puts in at least 10% of whatever investment, equity investment we make. So people sort of know we're all also all on the same boat. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, that's, that's super interesting. And I don't think something that, that a lot of people talk about, you know, publicly is, is managed accounts and, and whether or not hedge funds are actually running, you know, side, you know, managed accounts for individuals. Um, so uh, back to, you know, Black Panther and, and trading their own capital. I know that you personally are also trading or at least, you know, trading alongside, um, you know, the rest of the, you know, BPC crypto team. So are you personally, you know, a more passive or active investor? And have you seen that change over the last few years? Yeah, um, I definitely say I was more of a passive investor before I bought Bitcoin. You know, um, uh, I think about eight, I'm very, I'm very, I'd say about, I guess you could say Bitcoin maximalist, you know. I believe that Bitcoin is the only non-binary bet in the space right now. Um, it's been proven. It's digital gold. I, I, I don't think it's going to go away. Ethereum sure could go past ten thousand. You know, it's leading. I think it's currently leading this bull market with decentralized finance. But at the end of the day, I think it's still still a pretty binary bet where um, it could go to zero at one point someday, whereas Bitcoin will not. So personally, myself, you know, I used to just buy Bitcoins, put in cold storage. And I was like, not going to sell it for 10 years. Um, you know, if you look at gold, the market cap is what around 3 trillion right now. Bitcoin is around 180 billion. Um, so just based on that, Bitcoin has about a 10x uh, value to gold, Paul Tudor Jones, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you know the story. But right now trading with Black Panther Capital, um, you know, you live, you live and you learn, right? So personally for myself in the past few years, you know, I've always been interesting interested in trading etc so sort of like working with our team currently and optimizing a strategy together uh it's been great learning myself and also trading alongside and um sort of managing risk on these accounts that we're doing ourselves right now for black panther yeah no that's that's super interesting and i and i think i'm you know kind of aligned with you in in that thought process right where it's funny that you know bitcoin kind of came out of nowhere you know from a mailing list you know, 10, 11 years ago. And it's now an asset that I personally feel is a store of value. Like I, 
you know, I, I, spe- I, I think especially with the March, March 12th flash crash, I feel confident that there is enough support for Bitcoin now that we aren't going to go to zero. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I agree with you on the, you know, once you start getting into other alts, you know, certainly, you know, Ethereum has been very successful now. There's a tremendous amount of progress and applications being built on top of the, the Ethereum protocol. But, but I, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, a, um, an asset that, that, that is going to continue to go up. Whereas I think Bitcoin is now seriously being looked at as, as a digital gold by a younger generation. Uh, and I think that, you know, we'll continue to see that, you know, once a younger generation starts to come into power at larger hedge funds, at pensions, you know, and regulatory bodies, I think that, you know, we'll start to see more support for, for Bitcoin and for that digital gold narrative. So um, you mentioned earlier, you know, a, a number of things about, you know, China, for example, you know, Chinese investors being, you know, a little bit less experienced, but also Chinese investors um, being much more eager to enter crypto in 2017. Um, so can you highlight the major differences that you've seen between both China and the United States as it relates to crypto, both in 2017, which you mentioned before, but also to today? Has has there been any notable shift that you've seen? Sure. So in 2017, the plainest way to put it is in China, it was mostly ICO pump and dumps that Chinese investors were getting access to. And there was the funds, you know, I'm not, I'm not even... Uh, I'm not even I'm not even gonna hold back, but like there's there's a pure like you know scam sort of funds like in blockchain at the time you know like that that just literally is like in blockchain Li Xiaolai would say would be the advisor you know X person you know this other Chinese fund will be you know the market maker and then you will do the the uh, shilling of it and then boom you pump it up there's these WeChat groups and then that's how it goes so when I came back and saw like this is sort of what super, super respectable investors in the traditional space that were also our LPs and people we work with other funds were looking at and investing in. I just knew there was an issue there. You know, that's why we sort of did the fund to fund structure to give access to more, um, how do you say, like uh, a lot more professional managers. Whereas in the US, um, sure, there was also similar pump and dump situations in the ICO market in 2017. But at the end of the day, I think there was a lot more professional funds to choose from. So in China, it was it was a purely gambling speculative space, which I believe is also what you know one of the main attractions of crypto, where you can do no KYC AML and take hundred x leverage and trade something. Right, so it's a casino. It's amazing um, the accessibility of it, but uh, there's a lot of risk, obviously, for what um, at the time Chinese people called chives, um, where it, you would get cut because you do not. There's a mafia in every space, and you as a newcomer, I believe, same same thing for DeFi right now. You know, people trying to stake and do a lot of yield earning uh, did not know at what time to stop or dump, et cetera, because there's just a very small group of people controlling the actual information flow and the market flow, which is probably the biggest issue that um, crypto will have facing forward or uh, at least even for Bitcoin, where there's so many bad actors in the space um, making quick money. How do you differentiate that from the people actually trying to you know, provide regulatory clearance to help uh, the space and make it better. So one thing that we talked about earlier was that Bitcoin is a digital gold narrative and as a, as a hedging, a, you know, hedging asset against macroeconomic uncertainty, you know, that that's a narrative that very much exists in the West. Is that a, is that a narrative that you're seeing in China now, or is it still very much, you know, a gambling type, you know, let me place a hundred X, you know, 
leveraged bets on you know these crazy DeFi protocols that may go to ten billion dollars tomorrow or, or may go to zero? Um, no, I actually think Chinese investors right now have have smartened up a lot a lot in uh, over on the east. So one, I think is the mining. Some of the largest miners are in China, um, no doubt about it. Uh, second, you know the largest mining company in the world uh, is in China, Bitbain. Third, I think the most interesting thing is China. China right now is uh, very actively as a government trying to um, create more blockchain projects. So China in 2017, September, basically it was like Black Friday, cut off all exchanges, you know, no no exchanges, no trading of crypto, et cetera, et cetera. They, they saw what the craze was and they knew, you know, something was wrong there, the government. So essentially cut off everything in China against crypto. Now, the largest, the company that owns the most uh, blockchain patents is actually in China. So Chinese companies understand that China, the Chinese government is really into blockchain and does not want to miss this wave, but it's just how to regulate it. So now, a few months ago, China came out with a handbook called Blockchain, Not Bitcoin, uh, and handed it to literally every government official across you know, all jurisdictions to read. And then there was an app in, that they would have to even log on to and you know, fill out certain questions and do, et cetera. So China is actively trying to not only educate um, they're from the top down, uh, from government officials all the way down to what you know blockchain actually is and implementation, but also help companies with their blockchain strategies. I think you know seeing the DCEP Chinese Stablecoin Initiative come out. Um, I'm speaking with a few friends that are uh, working with the government closely right now, trying to get the first regulated Chinese crypto exchange um, going. Um, said instead of just doing the P2P trades on Huobi or OKEX right now. So I think uh, there's definitely a sophistication level rising in China, and people are getting a lot smarter. Uh, so, and it's not definitely not just putting money. I don't think I don't even think DeFi has reached you know sort of a lot of the East yet um, in terms of like the investors that were burned before. It's more people who stuck through the bear market are still in crypto. Are large miners? Those are the people in the East that are doing a lot of decentralized finance plays. Yeah, and we we've seen the same thing, you know, across a lot of the data that we've looked at. So one of the you know things that we have access to is is data on you know you know we're recording every single uh, headline from twelve hundred different data sources, everything from SEC filings to court cases, regulatory rulings, you know, et cetera. And as we look at headlines mentioning DeFi, it seems like the DeFi headlines are very very much concentrated among the existing crypto publications. And we've seen very little mainstream coverage. And I think that probably extends to, to, to China, where it's the people that were already in the space are the people that are involved with DeFi, but it hasn't really gone beyond that yet. And so so one thing you mentioned there, obviously, was the Chinese government and the blockchain, not Bitcoin, um, you know, argument that they're being made, that that is being made. How do you think about regulatory uh, risk as it relates to crypto? Uh, is that a concern that you have? And, and do you think that there is more or less regulatory risk uh, in China now that they're taking this blockchain, not Bitcoin, you know, initiative uh, to heart? Um, yeah, there's obviously um, certain things. Um, I think I think what I will say about the regulatory risk in China for, for cryptocurrency right now and uh, being a fund manager, running a fund of funds, et cetera, doing anything in crypto in China, if you already have an existing business, is that... Um, I won't say much, but Black Panther Capital does not advertise its crypto strategy at all in China. So there's zero, we will be on zero Chinese publications. We've, at, we've been asked to take our names down. 
you know, we've asked the publication to take our names down, et cetera. So I, I won't speak much to, you know, how other funds and how other Chinese investors, you know, manage their reputation, et cetera. But in China, at least because um, 90% of our business is still investing in the TMT sector, et cetera, um, we, we do not do any PR in China whatsoever. So that is one. But I think two, regarding the blockchain, not Bitcoin, um, uh, I, think, I think it's a great initiative, honestly. Like a lot of Chinese, like uh, when we when we are at dinner now, you know, people who are interested in crypto, and I'm talking fund managers in other spaces or GPs of of uh, other companies. You know, if you look at even the probably the largest fund of fund in Asia right now for crypto, uh, Dragonfly Capital. You know, Hasib is there. You know, uh, there's there's a lot of great guys um, doing doing very interesting things. So so for us for us honestly, we, we're not too concerned about the risk. It's more so that how how to um, provide a portfolio for our investors that they feel comfortable with, that not only are they just long the asset class, but they can also learn along the way. So for example, we have seminars, et cetera, that would bring our LPs for our investors to learn about what the space is. Like what, what is this YAM finance that just happened last week, you know, and give a recap sort of <laughs> like <laughs> of, uh, of, of things that oh, happen. Man. So they're in the know-how because for them, it's like, you know, the family office put in capital. It's, it's, it's very, very little. It's uh, not comparable to any check size that they will put into any, you know, of our other investments that we do together. But so it's a more of a learning process to Together. And so let's finish off with with two two fun questions. So the first is what has you most excited about the crypto space right now? DeFi. Straight up DeFi. Honestly, Josh, I don't know too much about it um, compared to I think half the people I see talking about it on Twitter and my counterparts in the West. But um just playing around with the different protocols, uh looking at you know how things are moving along and how it's driven this market up. The energy is amazing. I think a lot of people are drawing comparables right now with the 2017 ICO market to what DeFi is right now, just because, you know, there are certain protocols that are still in experimental phases and uh, people are, you know, putting millions of dollars in. And so I think uh, something really funny, my friend told me was like, you know, a Harvard Business School um, grad could give you a uh, investment project, you know, for $200,000 you know, that, that, you know, is trying to change the world and you ask them to send it to your inbox and uh, you'll take a look at the deck. Whereas a DeFi project like Yam that has nothing proven, literally says experimental, you, you will not even hesitate to put like, 10 Bitcoins in. So I think uh, that's that's the difference in one. Um, so I, I'd say DeFi is definitely what excites me the most and I'm trying to learn more about it myself as well. So so earlier I mentioned that, that James is the next Yao Ming. So James is a a massive basketball fan. So we usually like to ask just a non-crypto related final question. So so my question for you is right now, if you got to start your own NBA, NBA franchise, which I'm sure is in the dreams of, you know, one of the next assets that BPC acquires, but what players <laughs> do you have on your ideal starting five and, and why? You know, one day, you know, my dream is, is to is to own starting maybe smaller uh, stake in a CBA team and then possibly you know hopefully one day in an NBA team but starting five do you so mean, what what team you know, are you a, a Shanghai Sharks fan what's your uh, what's your team um, I mean I'm in Beijing so I got to support the Beijing Ducks you know the Ducks um, the Ducks yeah I, I mean if you look at what Jeremy Lin wrote uh, so actually the finals for the Chinese CBA was uh, on Sunday so two days ago. And um, Guangdong won. Jeremy Lin's uh, Beijing team lost in the semifinals. And then Jeremy Lin posted a insanely long uh, Weibo post about how it's so much tougher playing in the CBA than the NBA because 
and CBA, they don't just play basketball. They like uh, are very, very violent. Like there's, there's, he's, I think he was hit to the ground, like, you know, in one game in a CBA game more than the entire season in NBA. So I think it's a t- totally different league in, in one. Um, but in two, yeah, going back to your question, my ideal starting five right now, of cur- is it, are you meaning with currently active players? Currently active. Okay. So point guard, without a doubt, I got to go Damian Lillard. You know, he, I think he's, he's something else. Like I literally woke up, I don't know if you wa- watched the last three Portland 61. games before. Uh, he, I think it was 51, 61, 51. Exactly. And it's not even the way he got it. It was like his demeanor, how he carries himself on and off the court. You know, he does so much for the community, you know, um, that people don't realize he has never gone into any trouble. I mean, the ideal superstar has never gone into trouble. The face of the franchise is LeBron James. I think mean, NBA got very lucky with that. Um, but Damian Lillard, he, he's, he's incredible. Um, just how his, his, his playoff grind is on the line. He's never left Portland. He's been the face of the franchise and how he carries himself. So I got to have him as my point guard. Um, two guard, James Harden. I think there's no better score in the league right now. I don't know how well he'll play with Dame. Um, just because James needs the ball in his hands, but I, I'm sure they'll with work anyone. it out, you know? Yeah. With anyone. Yeah. They're the, <laughs> the, the two of the best players in the world. Um, three, I'd have to, you know, LeBron, how, how can you not, how can you not put LeBron on there right now? 17 years in the league, the thing that he's, the things that he's done, I feel like he can play another five to 10 years. And I'm not talking about just playing, like he's at the top. He's, a, he's like, I think MVP contention with Giannis right now after 17 years, pretty incredible. Um, four and five, uh, let's see. Honestly, yeah, you, you know, can play you take, small ball, or or if, you, you can play small ball if you want. So you know, this is gotta, 2020 NBA. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for my center, I gotta go with my man Embiid. You know, he's um, my African brother. He he's just <laughs> so entertaining to watch. I think he just uh, had another thing with Marcus Smart in Game One today. You know, Embiid is always entertaining to watch. And four, I gotta go with Giannis. You know, put put him in there. The, the Nigerian freak. Uh, he. His story was also incredible from, from how he even got to the NBA. But you put the five of them together, I, I don't think there's anyone on the planet that can assemble a team to beat them right now. All right. Well, James, this was awesome. This was a great time. Can you uh, can you just you know share where people can find out more about you and Black Panther Capital? Is there a website, Twitter, anything like that? Yeah. Um, for So Black Panther, you know, you can go to our website, blackpanthercapital.com. Uh, very simple. Or to reach me, you know, on Telegram at James BPC. Uh, always responsive, even though we need some VPN and et cetera action in China when we're stuck <laughs> here. <laughs> I don't think I'm leaving China for the next year or so, uh, just with what's going on in the world right now. All right, James. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. It was great having you on. Thank you, Josh.